It's time for Cadillac On Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac On Call, here's Jim Hall. Hello, friends. Welcome to Cadillac On Call. Jim Hall with you, and happy St. Patrick's Day as we come on the air tonight and talk about the latest relative health information of the Tri-Cities, and as has been the case for much of the past year, COVID-19 is our focus for most of the program this evening. And so we want to bring you up to speed. The weather is improving. Daylight savings time is upon us, and the temperatures are getting warmer, and we are continuing to see progress in the uh, battle against COVID-19, not only in the in the case declining cases uh, over time, but at the same time, the vaccine on its way as well and getting into more and more people's arms as we speak. So the first half of our program, we're happy to have with us tonight, Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. And Heather, why don't we just begin, if we could, on where things stand tonight on St. Patty's Day 2021? Well, in some areas, we're looking quite good. In other areas, cautiously optimistic, but yet in others, we're still quite concerned. When we look at our case rates, um, Benton County is currently at 137 cases per 100,000 over 14 days. And so we're, you know, kind of cautiously optimistic with that number, but still concerned because we would like to see it dropping quicker. But then when we move across into Franklin County, it's at 233 per 100,000 over 14 days. And I think what's disconcerting there is is we're really seeing an increase in case rate. And actually, Franklin County does have the highest disease rate per capita of any other county in the state. So that, of course, has us concerned, is Franklin County going to end up moving back in phase? So on, on one hand, there's a lot to be optimistic about, but on the other hand, uh, we can't get too complacent or we do run the risk of one of our counties moving back a phase. So that could happen. I, I can't keep track of the way these phases seem to work on, on opening up, but it, that is the case now where I guess the most recent uh, numbers or the most recent configurations were that we were connected to, gosh, four or five different counties in our region. So now, as you say, potentially, if things don't improve, Franklin County could go back a phase where Benton County does not. Right. You know, and, and we kind of look at some of the other things that are happening in that county to say, why could it be that that's happening over there? So we look at um, even vaccine rates. And we see Benton County right now, 18% of Benton County's population has initiated vaccination, meaning they have at least one vaccine on board, possibly two. And Franklin County is at 11.9% initiation, and it is the second lowest county in the state. There's only one county lower than Franklin County for, for vaccination rate. So I think we have a, a lot of work to do to find out what we can do to help Franklin County residents. Um, and that's my home county. What can I do to help my my county of residents improve, improve the data, improve our statistics? Because ultimately that's going to be reflected in you know morbidity and mortality rates. How many more people are going to get sick in Franklin County as we see this data trending the wrong way? 
any reason, I guess, on first on the vaccine side, why their, that rate is lower than other counties around the state? You know, it's, it's difficult to speculate. Um, you know, certainly the mass vaccination clinic is in Benton County, but it's just within a matter of a few miles of Franklin County, and it's open to everybody in this region, so there is certainly access to a large mass vaccination clinic. Um, there are certainly pockets of, you know, populations in both counties that are a little bit more difficult to access, a little more difficult to reach. So, you know, it, it's hard to say exactly what is the factor that is leading to the data looking like this. And then on the case rate, as you were saying, those numbers going back up, and and I remember you cite that number, it, it comes back to me now so vividly because it was such a focus uh, last summer relative to the school and fall to the school openings. But uh, that number is still relatively high, in, especially in Franklin County, as you said. Yeah, it is still very high. And, and like I said, it's the highest per capita in the state. So that is troublesome to us. Is there, you know, everything uh, has a little political tinge to it, but but how how are you hearing? I guess just are you with mass compliance uh, in the whole, just in general? Are you, are you seeing, hearing? Are you doing anything to even evaluate it, or or is it just anecdotal at this point? You know, at this point, it's it's anecdotal, but there are discussions. You know, actively we're having discussions about doing some mass surveys as we have in the past, because we do through our information line. People certainly do call in concerned about what they're seeing in the community. And uh, we're starting to get a little bit of an increase of people having concerns about various stores, various facilities, groups of people, again, starting to gather or going shopping, going out and about. And and the masks are not being worn as consistently. I I think we're all, we talk about um, COVID fatigue, you know, that that certainly is a, a new word in our vocabulary now. But I think people are are excited to have phases open up, yet forget we still need to do those basics that help keep us protected even when we are moving into opening up our phases. It's that consistent mask wearing, hand hygiene with soap and water or sanitizer, and, and keeping your distance, watching that distance, you know, standing person to person because that is how people get infected. And we need to keep vigilant whether we're moving along into opening our phases. We still haven't dropped those important um, mitigation factors in preventing the spread. So yes, we get to have more fun, we get to go mix with people, but we still need to be very vigilant and wear our masks. And how are things in the schools? I know it seems to me from, from what I'm seeing and hearing, and interestingly enough, we've we've heard this statewide directive to other parts of the state that haven't even done any hybrid learning, that that needs to start happening. But we have been doing that for a while, and it seems to been have been fairly successful. You're exactly right, Jim. The outbreaks that we're seeing related to schools really isn't associated with the classroom environment. It's in the other ancillary programs within the school. Um, so what we're seeing is the staff in the schools are doing an exemplary job 
of helping kids do what they need to do and staff do what they need to do to protect each other. But then it's also kudos to the parents who are, are giving those positive messages to their kids as they're going off to school because uh, we're just not seeing um, significant rates of transmission within the school at all. In fact, we're not seeing in-classroom transmissions happening. So kids do bring it to school, but that's kind of where it ends. They end up going back home, and, and we don't see it then transmit person to person to person in that classroom because they're doing such a good job of doing those things that we keep telling people work. I mean, if our elementary kids can, can catch on and wear their mask correctly all the time, I would certainly think adults could um, use that example and do it themselves because it's working in the schools. It will work everywhere else. We're visiting with Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. Caldic on Call is the name of our program. When we come back, I want to dive a little more deeper into the current status of vaccine, uh, the types of vaccine, where it's available, and how you can access it uh, if you are qualified by the tier levels. Back with more of our program in just a minute. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to the program. We're visiting with Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District on Cadillac on Call. And Heather, I'd like to shift the focus to the vaccine. And you brought up a, a kind of a troubling statistic, and that's the amount of the percentage of folks in our region that have gotten the vaccine. And you mentioned that Franklin County is is lagging a little bit compared to not only Benton County, but other counties around the state on the people that are eligible to get the vaccine. They're not getting it. Any reason why? Again, we're really not sure exactly why, and that's something that we we are looking closely at to try to find out why that is and is there some way that we can help remedy this. We know that uh, it's difficult for some populations to access where they would typically go and get vaccine, such as their medical provider office, and we know a lot of medical providers haven't received vaccine yet. There are certainly some that have received so, um, yeah, we're still very concerned about this and doing a close look to see if, if we can help figure this out and make it more equitable for our residents of Franklin County. I mean, on a positive today, in fact, I think today, the 17th, as we're on the air, there's some new eligibility available, right? So hopefully more people can take advantage uh, to get the vaccine, right? So now more and more people are able to, to move forward? Right. Uh, they did change the eligibility criteria today which means that everybody who was previously eligible is still eligible. So we never, you know, turn off a phase. We just keep moving forward, which still has us concerned that there are a number of people who are still lagging behind getting vaccinated in their phase. So we'll keep looking at that. But then today's phase, um, phase 1B tier 2, when they <laughs> do get a little bit confusing, yes. it, it brought in people 16 years or older who are pregnant, people 16 years or older who have a disability that put them at high risk for severe COVID illness. And some of those disabilities that put a person at risk would be Down syndrome, a developmental disability, intellectual disability, deaf, hard of hearing, um, blind, low vision, 
or underlying medical conditions that increase their risk for severe outcomes. And also today, staff working in homeless shelters or staff working in domestic violence shelters were also included. And then there are some high-risk critical workers who work in certain congregate settings, such as agricultural, fishing vessel crews, food processing, grocery stores, corrections, prisons, jails, public transit, and, and of course, any of the remaining first responders that haven't been vaccinated already. And what they're really looking at is, is that high-density, high-volume enclosed settings such as a grocery store or a large food bank. People who would not be eligible would be in a low-density, low-volume open setting, such as a, a, a coffee shop where there's just a person working like a, a barista, a small convenience store where you are not face-to-face -face with very many people, and a weekend farmer's market or possibly a winery. This is some clarification we did receive from Department of Health today. But they did, you know, they have kind of a four questions. Do you work in an enclosed setting? Do you interact with high volumes of people? Do you work more than three hours in a 24-hour period of time? And are you not able to consistently social distance? Those are the four questions you need to be able to answer yes. And then you fit into that high-risk critical worker, especially in, in those agricultural environments, especially for us here in the mid-Columbia, we remember back last summer how COVID disease hit our farm worker population so hard, and that affects our agri-industry tremendously. It was a, a big financial concern for our agricultural businesses, and one thing we really want to focus on this year as that population is increasing and our agricultural businesses are getting busy again, we need to get those people vaccinated so that we don't have that disease burden this summer like we did last summer. And it's kind of brought in a, a, a unique question where people have said, well, I already had COVID. Last summer I had COVID real bad, so I don't need to get vaccinated this summer. And that's, that is not true. Even if you've had COVID disease, we do not know how long your immunity from having the disease will last. So you still absolutely need to get vaccinated to assure that, that you have the best protection possible. So we're working very hard to, to message that community and let them know that, yes, you may have had disease last summer, but this summer you really need to, do, to get that vaccine on board. That's a very good point because I think one of the issues – to the point you're making about the essential agriculture population is the outreach that's necessary because they may be eligible, but maybe because they're working, they don't have, for whatever reason, transportation means or just during the time that they're working to go get the vaccine. So is there efforts and plans in the way to maybe take take the vaccine to the orchards, to the farm areas, to the to the places where these essential workers are? We have a team that is totally dedicated to work with our agricultural community, and they've been in constant con um, contact with these various businesses over the last few weeks, making plans on just how is the best way to reach your worker population. We know some of them, perhaps uh, a bus to the mass vaccination clinic out of the fairgrounds. 
others will really need on-site through the various um, community partners who are stepping up and saying that they have the capability and are willing to go out and help do some vaccinations. So I, I think it's going to be through a variety of efforts um, by a variety of our community partners who are standing up and saying that they're willing to, to help make this happen. I know at Cadillac there is a clinic tomorrow. It's a second-dose clinic, but on Saturday there's a, a series of doses available for first-dose qualified uh, folks, and uh, you can go to the Cadillac Facebook page and probably call 211 and get some help signing up uh, for a clinic that's being held at Cadillac this coming Saturday. Uh, so I know there are continues to be a vi- more, I guess, more available vaccine than maybe we saw a month ago, but... Uh, but for those tiers, it sounds like, Heather, you're saying maybe some of the people aren't taking advantage of them. They should be getting this vaccine, shouldn't they? They should, and I think that's where we're reaching the more challenging population right now. Our senior population, our elderly people, they were scared of COVID. They saw their friends and family die, and it emotionally hit them very, very hard. And the younger population, you know, tends to be a little bit more invincible. Yeah, I might catch it, but I'm not going to get very sick. So why do I need to get vaccinated? And that's where the problem lies. You need to get vaccinated because it really, we're really looking to have as much decrease in disease burden as possible to help stop it from spreading through our community. But we're, we're reaching that population that it is more difficult to convince them to get vaccinated or they're more difficult to access. They work different hours. They are not, they don't have access to transportation. Language can be a barrier. There's cultural barriers. There are a lot of reasons why people do not access the services the way they're presented in our community. And that's where we, as public health and as a community, really need to look at equitable access to a vaccine. And are we doing everything possible to assure every single person in our community is able to access a vaccine um, for them and their family? And so we just have a a minute or two left with your time, but I know uh, two of the three vaccines that are predominant here both require two doses, and and I think you've shared with us that some of the folks think once they get the first one, they've heard some of the second dose side effects might be a little challenging, so they'll think, yeah, I don't think I'll get the second one. Not true, right? Yeah, we're still seeing a little bit of that happening, and it's not just locally. We're we're hearing that nationally, and and people aren't coming back to get that second dose for a variety of reasons, and yeah. Some people do experience a little more pronounced side effects, but most people find that the side effects are very, very short-lived. Within 24 hours, they're fine. Then there's also the, uh, you know, I just don't want to go back and take the time to get that second dose. I've had one. That's good enough. And no, it isn't good enough because you're missing out on that last bit of protection that you, you truly do need with that booster shot. And I think there are some people who said, well, the Janssen vaccine, the J&J vaccine, only requires one. I'll, I'll just stick with that no matter what type of vaccine I got. And, and the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was tested out to look at its efficacy with one dose. But the other two, the efficacy really does rely on that two-dose series. 
So you can't really compare them and say, well, I'm just going to get one dose. Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. And if I can probably sum things up as we sit here, St. Patrick's Day, cautious optimism continues to be the phrase, but people need to go ahead if they're eligible to get the vaccine. People still need to continue to get tested if they think they have any kind of symptoms. Uh, They still also, uh, if they have been vaccinated and as they are able to go out and enjoy uh, dinner in a restaurant, so to speak, or other things that you can do as we open up, you still need to be vigilant about wearing masks when at all possible and continuing to keep that social distance. Our thanks to Heather Hill, as always, and thank you for listening. We'll be back with the second half of Cadillac on Call after this. Listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to the program. We're going to stay a little bit COVID-related, but we're going to shift our gear toward the issue of safety and patient safety, whether you're in the hospital setting or in the doctor's office or a clinic or just overall uh, safety relative to day-to-day living. And so who better to do that than the person whose title at Cadillac is the Patient Safety Program Manager, and that's Teresa Robinson, who was a nurse by training and, and very well versed in, in all things relative to patient safety. And, and Teresa, I just ask you to begin, maybe just when you think of it, it's probably just it's pretty self-explanatory of that issue. But there are so many different things that go into it, isn't there? Absolutely. Into patient safety? Yes. Absolutely. Um, yep. Yeah. So, um, and just thinking of healthcare in general, it's a very complex and there's lots of moving pieces. Um, Patients have lots of comorbidities. And then just thinking of, you know, going from one uh, perspective, from going from your doctor's office visit to maybe to the OR and then, you know, following up, it's just there's a lot of moving pieces to patient safety. And I know the the COVID pandemic, it's limited the ability to what most patients are used to, to bringing caregivers with them, family members with them. So that has made things a little difficult. And I know the visitation policies are opening up and have opened up. But still, um, that point of during COVID, you know, certainly safety is paramount. Absolutely. You know, and and Cadillac, we have a longstanding commitment to the healthcare needs of our community. And we want to make sure that we're providing that safe, um, compassionate care that is our mission um, to our uh, patients and our community members. And so, you know, even just looking at that, and I'm sure Heather touched on it a little bit, just having masks for all of our staff and making sure our patients and visitors are masked and making sure that, you know, we are, as we would say, gelling in and gelling out with our hand sanitizer and just making sure we're doing those common things that, you know, we hear day to day on keeping ourselves safe. And I was going to say, if, if we've learned nothing, the importance of infection control. And, and I think uh, it, Heather had mentioned in past weeks, the, the flu incidence uh, is almost non-existent in our community. And it's probably due to the vigilance to the things you just described, you know, certainly the mask wearing, but just the, the persistent hand washing. 
Absolutely. And even, you know, I think back to last March when, I mean, this all started. And I think that was when we had uh, Patient Safety Awareness Week. And I remember that we were talking about, you know, what, how, how do you wash your hands and how long should you wash your hands and, you know, what you should do when you're washing your hands. And so it's just interesting how over time, over this last year, I think that more and people, more and more people are aware and are doing those things to keep themselves safe and to keep our community safe. That's really an interesting, that's an interesting point because, you know, it might have been something that we, you know, we were maybe blasé, if that's a word uh, that I think I'm aware of, uh, about that we just didn't, you know, we may wash our hands, but we don't do it correctly. And so if there's anything we've learned out of all of this is the importance of of hand hygiene and making sure that we're taking those precautions, right? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we're taking that information from our, you know, our respected infection prevention experts and and from the Center for Disease and Control Prevention. We take that guidance from them and we are applying it to the things that we are doing at Cadillac to ensure that safety for our patients. You know, I'd like to get a touch on, I know you spend so much time, and Cadillac is a large organization that, that has a lot of, as you have already described, different components of the health care that is provided, everything from the operating room and the intensive care unit and the emergency department and the labor and delivery areas and the laboratory and the imaging areas. There's a, there's a term that I know uh, that goes around, and it's a, it's a concept, I guess, or a, almost a, a philosophy that Cadillac adheres to called high reliability. W- what is meant by that? So, yeah, I'm glad you, that you touched on that. So high reliability is just making sure that, um, you know, again, learning from systems like the aviation industry and the nuclear power industry, who they also have these very complex systems, and how do they work together to make sure they get things right? And that's what I think of when I think of high reliability and how we are going to do the things 100% of the time reliably so that we can provide that safe, compassionate care that we talk about. And so that's what I think about when I talk about high reliability. And, and maybe give us an example of just, you know, in, in the world of healthcare of, of something, just something simple that may, not to put you on the spot, but maybe it's something that, <laughs> a process that, you, that, you, that describes that, just something that people get the habit in and, they, and it's, it just becomes second nature to them. Yeah, so... One of the things that we teach um, our staff is the Swiss cheese model. And the Swiss cheese model is just a really good example of how um, an error can happen. And so if you think of pieces of cheese um, that are all lined up, and each piece of cheese is something that stops a certain uh, behavior or an error from happening, we call those the multiple barriers, right? And then we have these holes, and that's why it's called the Swiss cheese. And those, those holes are either latent weaknesses, maybe a policy or a procedure that may not, not be totally correct or, or might need some changing. Or then there's also those human behaviors where um, maybe somebody has been distracted. And those cause holes in those Swiss cheese. And when we have holes in the Swiss cheese that all line up um, is when there is an error. And so what we do as an organization is to prevent, detect, and correct um, those errors from happening. And we do that by making those holes in the Swiss cheese, if you will, harder or, you know, smaller. And so it's just, again, just making sure that all your systems are as, as safe as possible. 
Exactly. And, and I like to call them forcing, forcing functions. So like you, you asked for an example, I think of things like um, when you go to put your gas, you know, put, go put gas in your car, if you have a diesel or if you have it, you only can put a certain kind of gas because of the mechanism that they have on the gas can or the gas pump. Or if you have a different kind of a plug that fits into a different um, uh, adapter, you, you only have certain ones. And those are forcing functions to keep us as humans to, you know, not make those errors. And so we try really hard in healthcare to put those types of forcing functions into play. Not always can they be done, but that's one, one of the things that we want to make sure that we are um, doing. And is that similar to taking advantage of advances in technology? The one that I recall from from times gone by is is when when medications are administered that there are several different processes the the nurse or whoever is administering the medication goes through just to ensure that that patient is getting the precise medication at the right time. Absolutely, and it actually even just starts at our pharmacy. So excellent, uh, awesome people in our pharmacy who are putting together the medications, making sure that when they bring them up to the floor, that they're putting them in the right areas. So when that nurse goes to the machine to pull out that medication, they're getting the medication and they're checking that medication. If it is a high-risk medication, then the nurses are required to do a double check. They go into the room. Um, that forcing function is using the barcode scanner and they scan the patient's armband to make sure they have the correct patient and then scan the medication. Um, and then they, they hang the medication and then um, together look at it and make sure that it's the right one before they actually um, start that medication for that patient. So you're right. There are a lot of Swiss cheese or barriers <laughs> that we put into place um, that stop those errors from happening. And that should be a comfort to anyone who has to get health care. And, and I guess I would, would ask one more question relative to this is, is what, what is the message that, that, that the public should get out of all of this? Is take comfort or, or what, is, what role can they play? Is just don't be afraid to ask questions and by all means ask questions of your provider as you're getting care? Absolutely. That's one of the things that I was thinking about when I wanted, you know, wanted to stress to our communities is that your your um, part in healthcare is huge, and a lot of the times we tend to just think that we go with the flow, or a patient might just, you know, think that uh, somebody they just know what they're doing. But if you don't understand what's going on, it we want you to know at Cadillac that we want you as a patient to ask the question. If somebody is not uh, explaining something to you that you don't understand. With the high reliability organization, we want you as a patient to be a part of your care and to be able to ask those questions openly and get the answers that you need so that you do feel safe because that's really, again, what we want to do. Teresa Robinson is the Patient Safety Program Manager at Cadillac and it's National Patient Safety Awareness Week. And that's really, we should be having this conversation regularly because it's vitally important, as we all know. We have one more segment with Teresa, and we're going to talk about a Tri-Cities-wide coalition focused on patient safety, and we'll do that right after this. 
You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. And we have one more segment left with Teresa Robinson, who is the Patient Safety Program Manager at Cadillac. And we're talking about an issue that it seems, I guess, just almost something that we would all just take for granted in many ways, and that's patient safety when we're getting health care. But it's something that we've been comforted to know just listening to our first segment with Teresa, that um, an amazing amount of work goes on around uh, around the clock, really, uh, places like Cadillac, where a lot of this work takes place to make sure that when we go into the hospital and get care, go into the doctor's office to get care, that it is as safe as possible. And, Teresa, we touched on an, an organization that goes out into the Tri-Cities that collaborates on this patient safety issue. Tell us a little bit about the Tri-Cities Patient Safety Coalition. Sure. So Cadillac has been a part of the Tri-Cities Patient Safety Coalition, I believe, since 2005. And it is a, a I guess it was, it started with Battelle Pacific Northwest Division and engineers who got together with local hospitals and then now including Benton Franklin Community Health Alliance. And every year with um, this Tri-Cities Patient Safety Coalition, the hospitals in our area all come together and they work on an initiative having to do with patient safety. Meaning a particular issue that's one of one of the member groups might have brought up to say, hey, this is one that, that we want to address. What can we do collectively to come up with some solutions? Exactly. So um, because of their background in coming up with doing failure mode effect analysis, and that's just basically looking at a process um, and trying to come up with what could happen, what, what are the failure modes, and what are we going to do? And then so what Battelle and the Tri-Cities Patient Safety Coalition tries to do is come up with an initiative. And for example, one of the years we did something having to do with critical results notification and the criteria surrounding those critical results. Um, and so we collaborated with the hospitals in the organization and developed um, something having to do with a critical results and shared it across the community. Another one that we really worked on was um, medication reconciliation, which I think is really important for our um, community to know. Medication reconciliation, by, but what does that mean? So what I mean by that is that, you know, many patients have medications and you're taking medications at home. But if you come into the hospital and or into the emergency department, it is critical that you let us know um, as your caregivers to know what medications you're taking, what doses you're taking, when you're taking them. It's very important, especially then if you're admitted to the hospital, so we can reconcile what medications you are taking and continue them while you're in the hospital and while you're being cared for us. And certainly an issue that is that is hit the entire country is the whole opioid epidemic. So is does that like help in issues like that and, and, and address topics like that? Yeah, we did. Um, I believe that was in 2016 or 17. We did get together and we talked about the prescription monitoring um, program and, and looking at how um, Tri-Cities 
tries to battle the opioid addiction and what are we doing as a community as well as, you know, just our organizations, what we're doing to decrease um, how much opioids are given to patients and how easily accessible they might be. And so, yes, that was one of the things that the Tri-Cities Patient Safety Coalition did do as, as a group. This is your life. I know you're a nurse by training. And how did you end up settling in in this part of healthcare and take take on such an active interest in it? Yeah. So I have been an educator for a long time. I worked over in the west side um, at a hospital over in the west side as an educator. And when I moved over to the Tri Cities, um, I kind of just kept going with that. And so <laughs> I had an opportunity when I was an educator at Cadillac to train our organization on what we call Caring Reliably, which is our um, twist, or we call it Caring Reliably, and it has to do with the high reliability organization. And so I did, I started training. We trained all of our staff, 3,800 employees, and we continue to uh, train all of our employees when they're new hires on the behaviors, tones, and tools that go along with Caring Reliably and working together as a team. That should be of great comfort to all of us who are not clinically trained like you and your colleagues at Cadillac. But maybe just a concluding comment for somebody listening at home of why this is such an important topic uh, for them and why they should feel comfort in, in hearing people like you describe all of the work that goes into it. Yeah, it's true. And I wanted to give one shout out to what one thing in the program for Caring Reliably is our reliability coaches. And and we have an awesome executive team and leadership that really put put a lot into and support our Caring Reliably program, but not just our leadership, but also we have a team of frontline caregivers who are working with the clinics, the people in the clinics. They're working with the people on the unit, and we're keeping these Caring Reliably behaviors alive. So I wanted to shout out to the reliability coaches because they do a lot of work. I'm one person, and, you know, all of our leadership, we, we can do what we can, but we need to get as many people talking about it. And so knowing, I guess going into the next, you know, part of what your question was, is knowing that it's not just one person, me, driving this. It is from the top of our organization, from our leadership, down to, you know, the, the frontline caregiver. And we are all working on a daily basis. And like you said, this is something that we really do every day. We huddle every day and we talk about a safety message. We talk about communicating clearly. We talk about um, speaking up when you have a concern and having that psychological safety to be able to do that. And so that's what I want to leave with people um, in our community to know that we are working hard to make sure that we're providing the safest care. And you can know that it's not just one person driving it. It's our whole entire organization as a team. Teresa Robinson, so well said. Thanks for taking the time. The Patient Safety Program Manager at Cadillac, Teresa Robinson. Our thanks to her, thanks to you, and we'll talk again next week on Cadillac on Call.